You may be seated. Thank you, Tommy. The scripture reading. Praise the Lord. Grateful that um, sometimes you're really, I'm always glad to see everybody, you know, Sundays. But I was really, really glad to see Brother Chris Shaw walk through the doors today. <laughs> uh, their son uh, fell in a uh, ant hill, right? Fire, fire ants. And uh, is he okay? He's fine? What a trooper. Man, I don't know if I would have made it into church if I fell in a fire ant mound, you know? Those things are pretty vicious. Well, I was so glad to see you, Chris, because um, uh, that would have meant that I would have had to have sung and uh, haven't done that in a while, so it shows me how much I appreciate you, brother. <laughs> well, good. We've read our passage. Why don't we pray together one more time and we will begin Well, Father, we, we come to you now, Lord, and marvelous things of thee are spoken, for you are marvelous, and your word says the Lord only does wondrous things. And Father, you have done wonderful things in sending your son, Jesus, our high priest, to come as a sympathetic high priest to sympathize with our weaknesses. I pray today, Lord, that you'd help us to get in tune with our weakness we know that we live in a place, we live in a culture that doesn't appreciate weakness, that tries to mask weakness at all cost. But Lord, we truly are weak, and so we pray you show us that, but show us more importantly that you've given us a sympathetic high priest, one who was tempted as in all points, just as we are, yet without sin, so that he's able to come to our aid, he's able to help us, he's able to give us the, the strength and the help and the ministry that we need when we are downcast, when we are melancholy, when we are overwhelmed by our trials and our temptations, when we're overwhelmed by life's circumstances, Lord, we are grateful that we have one that is closer than a brother, our sympathetic high priest, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would magnify him now in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do today, again, is I want to correlate two passages of Scripture here in Hebrews. I want to take verses 2 and 3, and then I want to correlate that with verses 7 and 8. That really is the way the passage is flowing. Um, if you were to preach this straight through, what would happen is that you would encounter a bit of redundancy. That is because verses 1 through 4 are laying out uh, a picture of the earthly uh, priest, the high priest, and then verses 5 through 10 sort of reiterates those issues dealing with Jesus Christ. So I would rather link them together. Several commentaries and exegetes have done that, and I think that's right. But what we're looking at today, above everything, is the sympathy of our priest, as you can see that there in verse 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant, the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. So it begins with the ministry of the high priest who was sent to deal gently with the people because he himself has been beset with weakness. And so it brings up the issue of weakness. We just got out of going through the, um, the letter of 2 Corinthians. You remember 2 Corinthians was one big laborious letter that dealt with the issue of weakness in the ministry. The apostle Paul said, in fact, that when he was weak, then God is strong so that he is content with his weaknesses. 
And all of that really just speaks to the fact that the Christian life really is a life of weakness. And even though in the church we are so skilled even at presenting strength, but beneath the surface oftentimes there is a lot of weakness. We can have a real slick website. We can have a real slick web presence. We can make everything look uh, good and clean and, and, and everything, uh, lights, camera, action, and the whole bit. But yet within, we know how weak we are. And if we don't, we need to get to know how, just how weak and just how dependent and just how reliant we really are on God for every breath, for every moment, for everything, for everything that we gain in this Christian life. We are totally dependent upon our great high priest. So this passage really flies in the face of much of the self-esteem-obsessed culture in which we live that man is strong enough, that man has the resources within himself, that man is autonomous, that man is independent, when actually it is the complete opposite. And sometimes things happen in your life where God brings you up sharp on that very issue and shows you just how dependent you are. A bad hospital visit, a distressing phone call, a bad day at work, unexpected loss of employment, whatever it may be, a tragedy in the family some sort of issue going on in the home. Whatever it may be, we learn what it means when Scripture says all flesh is like grass. Job says in Job 7, 7, one of my favorite verses, he says, God, remember that I am breath. Job 25, verse 5, sums up the whole sum of human existence by saying that man is a worm. Not really a popular way of talking about a self-esteemed, self-image-obsessed culture. You are, at the end of the day, according to Job, just a worm. And we're also told that we are being sustained by God, that He carries us. John 3, 27 says, we can't even have one thing if it's not given to us by God. He saves us. He protects us. He feeds us. He delivers us. He nourishes us. My dear friends, God causes the rain to come down on us. He causes the sun to shine for us. He is sustaining our very breath. And as a matter of fact, our very soul is in His hand so that one day we will hear, your soul is required of you this day. Our whole existence is one of dependence. And that is really what I want to look at here but the text begins, once again, moving from the images of the earthly priest to the reality that is Jesus Christ, Jesus' priesthood. Only here, the sympathy of the priest is really in view. And so, this is really fleshing out. You remember what is said there in verse 1. I told you, verse 1 is kind of like a summation of everything that uh, these 10 verses are going to talk about. When he says, every priest is taken from among men and is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer up both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So, men need representation. Not only that, he needs to represent us in the things pertaining to God, which means he has a heavy task ahead. And, you know, I was tempted to focus a large part of this on the pastoral ministry because I saw so much application here for pastoral ministry, and I haven't chosen to do that. But just for me to point out that, that is the call of a minister as well. We are called as ministers to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided to be patient when wronged. We are those that are taught to, with gentleness and humility, uh, correcting those that are in opposition. 
The call of a pastor is to be a shepherd, not a tyrant, not a ruler, uh, not a, um, you know, we're, we're not to go around like little kings in a palace. We're really like doctors. <laughs> we're to be gentle like surgeons. We're to come in surgically and do spiritual heart work on the souls of God's people, and that's to be done with great care. And that's exactly what the earthly priests would do. Now, where does this language come from, though, however? When he says that he has to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, where does this language of ignorance and misguidance come from? Well, most commentators say, well, this is all rooted in Numbers 15. So let me read to you a couple passages out of Numbers 15 because there's two dynamics at work here. There are those that within the covenant community of God's people had sinned in ignorance. They had sinned unintentionally. And then there were those who sinned intentionally. That is to say, they broke covenant with God. Let me read to you Numbers 15, verse 28. The priest will make atonement before the Lord uh, for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. And so some would say that is really the background where this language comes from. However, there are those who willfully break covenant with God, and there are those who rebel against Yahweh openly, and uh, they don't find that type of sympathy. As a matter of fact, they find judgment that corresponds with the apostasy verses that we're going to find in Hebrews. But in Numbers 15, 29, it goes on to say, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall, not, or shall be cut off from among his people there were those in Israel who had chosen to live openly and defiantly and rebelliously to the covenant commitment that God was calling them to, and they were to be cut off. I mean, that has so much to do with the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is talking about a group of people that have gone into the new covenant and now are threatening to leave the new covenant, or really to go back to the old covenant. And as uh, the pastor of Hebrews says, to put Christ to an open shame, to re-crucify Christ by going back to the shadows as if true atonement could be found there again. And they couldn't do that. This is where Scripture says they will never be restored again to repentance, chapter 6, where if they go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, all they have to meet with is terrifying, the terrifying expectation of judgment, and the repentance is going to be sought with tears because they are as false as Esau, they will not find repentance. What a terrifying assessment of the, soul, of the state of the soul of an apostate person. Now, we're going to deal with those thorny theological uh, passages. I mean, those are some of the most difficult passages in Hebrews to deal with. We'll get there. We'll get there. But the ignorant, the misguided, the Old Testament priests were able to deal gently with them. And ultimately, the reason for this is because the priest was one with them. Notice what it says. He's able to sympathize with them because he himself is beset with weakness with weakness. That literally means he is clothed in a similar weakness as they were. But how does this fit with what we talked about last time in terms of the articles of clothing of the priest? You remember, this is the Word of God now saying that the Old Testament high priest is weak. 
But remember, he is clothed with incredible power and splendor and authority. Anything but weakness. He's got a crown on his head. So how does that correspond? Well, it only serves to solidify. It only serves to confirm the typological nature of the priesthood. Really, the Christological nature of the priesthood. That the priest was pointing to a greater priest who is sufficient for these things. Think about being an Old Testament priest. You are clothed with glory and splendor. You are decked out in your vestments and in all of your priestly apparel. But within was a weak worm of a man. And so this does not correspond to the sinful weakness of Jesus, of course, because Jesus had no sin. But it does correspond to what the Bible, or what theologians rather, describe as Jesus' state of humiliation. That Jesus came to be clothed, in a sense, with weakness. Not because of his sin, but so that he could remedy our sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28, really brings this distinction between the weakness of the Old Testament priest, but then the strength, or we could even say the perfection of the Son. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which is referring to Psalm 110, verse 4, talking about Melchizedek, came after the law, and he appoints a son made perfect forever. So if it doesn't point to the son's sinful weakness, then it must point to the son's incarnate weakness. That is that Jesus became one of us. And of course, Scripture has already spoken to this time and time again, what theologians call the state of humiliation. Verses 7 and 8 will give us three distinct ways in which the state of Jesus' humiliation Basically, his incarnation, because you might be thinking, you're still not grasping the state of humiliation. That's just speaking about his incarnation. While he was on earth, he was in a state of humility, even announcing his uh, messianic uh, role on a donkey. That's how much in humiliation he was clothed. But we're going to see here that he's able to sympathize with us because He knows the agony of our weakness. He knows the depth of our dependence, and He knows the extent of our suffering. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. You remember what the author, the pastor here, has already said. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, that's just stressing the humanity of Christ, that he came in real flesh and blood. Now, let's correlate that, as I said we would, with verses 7 and 8. Because in verse 7, the humiliation of Jesus' priesthood is captured in these words. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. Save him from death. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus understands the agony of our human weakness. And let me say that in the present tense. He knows the agony of our human weakness. It's not that he knew at one point, because I want you to see that Jesus right now, today, in your life, in your circumstances, he can identify with every weakness that you have. He's able to sympathize with you. Isn't that glorious? Isn't it glorious to know that Jesus at your lowest point, he looks down on you with, a, with, a, with, a, uh, with the appearance and um, with the face of understanding, not of condemnation, but he understands our weakness. He knows. He realizes that. And look, look at what it says here. In the days of his flesh, his incarnation, his entire life, he understood what it means to be in the, 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 the sphere of humanity as a man. Jesus was born you remember, under the oppression of Rome. He was born under the law. He was born of a woman. He was born in the agonies of natural birth. Furthermore, Jesus was born to pray, it says. He was born to supplicate, to weep, to shed tears of dependence on God. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. I don't think we quite sometimes esteem the humanity of Christ as we ought to. I still think that in our minds we think of Jesus walking around Galilee sort of glowing and having sort of this supernatural glow about Him when in reality He had, as John says in John chapter 1, He had skin, flesh. He says, sarks. And that's significant because in the, new, in, the, in, the, in the first century, you don't describe a human being with the word sarks unless you're really trying to get graphic about his humanness. And that's exactly what John is saying. He was a man. Absolutely. He stubbed his toe. He got splinters. He got a headache. He experienced pain. He knew what it was to live in anguish. And sometimes we forget that. He understood, in other words, the full range of human emotion, yet without sin. And because of this, Jesus, in His humanity, He knows what it means for us to despair. He knows what it means for us to feel pain. He knows what it means for us to sit in a hospital bed or to be filled with anxiety, to be sick, to be lonely, to be abandoned. He can identify with all those things. He knows the depth of sorrow. Remember, the Bible says, Jesus, you could characterize him as a man of sorrows. Isn't that remarkable? The happy God of the universe came to this world to live as a man of sorrow. That's so incredible to me. As a man, he felt the full brunt of physical suffering. And he was perfected, it says in chapter 2, verse 9. He's perfected through suffering. He drank the full cup of God's wrath. He completely poured himself out to death, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 2. Completely. He emptied himself of life. However, as God, we have to be very important. Uh, we have to make some important observations here. Remember that Jesus is fully man, fully God. And as God, it is not okay to say God died. I don't like that phrase. It is not accurate to say that God died. 
Uh, the man, Christ Jesus, died. But the being, the divine being of Jesus did not die. He never ceased to be the source of life itself. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is talking about when it says that Jesus became a life-giving spirit. That does not mean that Jesus went around like a phantasm. It means that in the, in, in the, in the uh, context of the time between his resurrection and his death, in that spiritual phase of existence, he was a life-giving spirit. When he stopped operating in the flesh, when he was pure spirit, only spirit, he gave life to others, to other spirits, namely ours, to our souls. And so... When we are at our lowest point, we should not feel abandoned by Jesus. It's not abandonment from Jesus that we should feel, but we should feel a very close association with Him. That's remarkable. Think about that. The next time you feel like you're in the pit of something, some trial, some depression, some melancholy, some sin that's got you down, condemned, beat up, realize and recognize that Jesus can identify. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn with me to several passages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, because there is a depth of communion with God that only comes through tapping into the sufferings of Christ. And we have to be careful here because cults have come out of this idea. It's known as asceticism, the idea that you should harshly treat your body to have greater communion with God. No, no, no. The Scripture is not uh, prescribing asceticism, but it is saying that when we suffer in a godly fashion, we do partake of Christ in a unique way, that without the suffering we just can't. Paul says, I rejoice, Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the church, and in my flesh, he says, I do my share on behalf of his body, the church in filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You want to talk about being connected, identifying with the sufferings of Christ? Paul saw his persecutions as literally filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. What is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ is the persecution that will come to his church. That is what is lacking. There are, what does Revelation say? There are yet more of them to come. Those that will be beheaded for the testimony of God's Word. There are more of them to come. There is afflictions that are filling up until it fills up all the way. And every one of us will have our part in that. Anytime that we suffer for Christ, this is particularly pertinent in persecution. Again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, We are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. And maybe the most significant text of all, the most significant text of all, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, this was Paul's desire. Is this your desire? He says, that I may know Him. That is his desire, that I may know Him. The power of His resurrection balanced over against the fellowship of His sufferings. See, He didn't have this, he didn't have this um, unrealistic view of the Christian life. He didn't have this hyper-spirituality of the Christian life. 
where it was all power and no weakness. The Apostle Paul understood just as much as I want to know the power of his resurrection one day, he says, I also want to know, I also want to become acquainted with the fellowship of his sufferings. Remarkable. Being conformed. Being conformed to his death. How do we become conformed to His death? What does conformity to the death of Christ look like? Suffering for the glory of God. We are all, in a sense, on our Calvary road. Jesus told the disciples, where I go right now, you cannot come, but one day you will come. And He told Peter, one day, Peter, you will, even though you have led yourself wherever you want, you've gone wherever you want in this life, you've done whatever you want, you've gone fishing, you have a fishing business, you have your own life, One day, Peter, somebody else will take you by the hand, will take you where you do not want to go. And I think that what he was referring to there, he was referring to the crucifixion of Peter. And the same thing could be said for Paul. Paul, one day, you will know. It's almost like he prayed better than he knew. One day you will fill up in your body the afflictions that are lacking in Christ's body because one day Paul the apostle will go in to a Roman prison for the last time and he will not come out. It just, I'm always staggered. Sometimes I've come to tears thinking of this before because the Apostle Paul has meant so much to me. Every time I'm in his letters, every time I'm dissecting his theology, everything I'm reading, sometimes when I'm reading a Pauline theology book, I think, I'm reading the words of a man who lost his head for Jesus Christ. And we should be, we should, we should, this should be relevant for us right now. I mean, there are people in the Middle East on HD camera, which I don't advise you even watch that, but that are losing their head because they're identifying with Christ. Let's say what you want about the Coptics, but they claim the name of Christ and they're being beheaded because of it. And so we should identify with these types of sufferings. We should understand that Jesus was able to fully identify with us and maybe more than in any other place it was at Gethsemane. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. I I can almost count on my hands how many times I've even cried as a grown man, okay? And I can't even remember when I cried with loud crying, wailing. I don't even remember crying like that before. But Jesus did. John MacArthur said, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night before He went to the cross, Jesus prayed and agonized so intensely that He sweat great drops of blood. Even though the text says, like great drops of blood, but we'll just, it's John MacArthur, we'll just keep reading. His heart was broken at the prospect of bearing sin. He felt the power of sin. He felt, the tempt- he felt temptation. He cried. He shed tears. He hurt. He grieved. What he had always known in his, con- in his omniscience, he learned in a new way on earth by experience. He could not have been a fully sympathetic high priest had he not experienced what we experience and felt what we feel. If we are tempted to say that no one understands our plight, brothers and sisters, I would subject to you that it is complete opposite is true. It's not that Jesus can't understand us, it's that we cannot understand Jesus. 
So remember that, that the next time that you are at your lowest point and you say, woe is me, despairing even of life. Remember that at that point, what you should say is, oh God, who could fathom what Jesus went through? If I'm going through this as a sinful man who deserves to suffer and deserves punishment, how the holy Lamb of God who doesn't deserve anything but glory and praise and worship and adoration, and He doesn't deserve anything but all of the riches of the kingdom of God. He doesn't deserve anything but glory, glory, glory. How is it that He, being the Lamb of God, died for the sin of the world? How is it that He was subjected to the cross? It's not that He can't identify with that. Oh, that's easy for Jesus to do. He knows what you're going through. But we don't know what He went through. We don't know what it means to bear the wrath of God. We don't know what it means to have the weight of the sin of the world on your shoulders. So when we are tempted to think of ourselves as hopeless, helpless, and weak, realize there is one who could fully sympathize with you, with your weakness. And because of this, it says in chapter 2, verse 18 of Hebrews, He can come to our aid. Next, Jesus not only knows the agony of our human weakness, but He knows the depth of our dependence upon God. Jesus, in a state of humility and his suffering, He understood what it means to be dependent on God. Look at verse 7 again. He prayed to the one able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Eulabeo, um, uh, which means godly fear. He was heard because of his godly fear, his piety, his godly reverence, his awe for God. Amazing, amazing statement. The ultimate hope that we have is rooted in the promise of resurrection. This is what Jesus is doing here. It's almost as Jesus wept for the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Turn with me to Psalm 16 in your Bibles just to look at this. But this is where it's all leading us to. It's leading us to this very thing, that Jesus, above all, entrusted Himself, entrusted His life, entrusted His soul. His last breath, He commits Himself to the Father. And what's it for? Life. And God was able to give him life. Psalm 16, verses 7 to 11 say, beginning in verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, con excuse me, consoled me. Uh, no, it says counseled me, I'm sorry. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad my glory rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make, me, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. What was Jesus trusting God for? The one who was able to deliver him from death? It's not just that he was able to deliver him from death, but that he was able to reward him for the act of obedience that he gave, for the perfect atonement that he made, for the perfect life that he lived. God was able to reward him completely, totally, perfectly. You know, for us, this is our hope. Oh, I want you to have hope in this world. Don't get me wrong. 
I want you to pray for your physical ailments. Don't get me wrong. I want you to pray for your provision. I want you to pray for uh, the, the, the temporal needs that you have. But brothers and sisters, above everything else, I want you to be more heavenly minded than that, more eternally minded than that. And I want you to understand what is your greatest hope. It's not that your headache goes away. Your greatest hope is that one day you will stand with Him on that day that you will see your Redeemer and live. As it says, because He lives, you will live too. Jesus said, where I go, you cannot come right now, but you will follow behind me. Soon after that, the disciples knew exactly what Jesus meant. That we're meant to follow Him. Our high priest who has gone through the heavens, behind the veil, the trailblazer of our faith, of our salvation. We are to follow Him in resurrection hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, this is our hope. We set our hope in Him in such a way. I want to see a little test, a little homework here. We set our hope upon Him in such a way that if that hope is removed, we are pitiful. That is how much weight we need to be putting on Christ. We believe that He is the resurrection and the life. We believe that He will, on the basis of His indestructible life, give us indestructible lives, eternal life. That one day He will save us. Just like Jesus when He prayed to His Father, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. We have to pray the same thing. He's quoting Psalm 31. In your hands I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. How, how, could, how, uh, how appropriate are those words, the next phrase of that psalm, for us? God has ransomed us. And so it's no surprise to find Stephen following in the steps of his Savior and saying, oh, Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit, committing committing his soul to him. Jesus is the typological psalmist. He waited on God to deliver him from all of his enemies, to deliver him out of the mouth of the lion, whichever that would be, Herod, Pilate, Jews, Romans, the devil, it doesn't matter. Jesus fully trusted God to deliver him. Jesus was fully dependent and confident on the power of God to raise him up. And we ought to too. We ought to too. We have no fear of death. I know that practically that does, and we're not perfect. I know practically we can even go through seasons where we fear all of those things where we're in the grip of fear, where we're just in that trial. We can't get out. We're perplexed. We have all these phobias. I understand that. But dear friends, pray that God will give you strength, that God will give you assurance, that God would grant you the mercy and the grace to stare death in the face and to be unafraid because your hope is so settled on Him that He will give you life, that He will bring you out. Notice it says, He was heard because of His piety. I want to make a big deal out of that because I think embedded in that, implied in that, is the entire doctrine of the act of obedience of Christ. That Jesus was heard because He was godly, because He was righteous, because He, was, he, he, he fulfilled all righteousness, and therefore God heard Him. 
God responded. It also means that God accepted him. He accepted his obedience. And therefore, what is the resurrection? But the final approval that God accepts the sacrifice of the Son. And it speaks to his God-fearing life as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Our calling is to follow in Jesus' footsteps to set our hope fully on God in the same way, to rescue us from the ultimate terror of death. This is precisely what Paul did. He believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. Do you remember? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, he said, look, he had the death sentence over his life, but he said, we were trusting God who is able to raise the dead. I don't know, I don't, I don't know how, there's no other way you can be a missionary in today's world but that you have this kind of resolve, that you trust God not to deliver you from the Muslims, but when the Muslims kill you and slaughter your family, that God is so faithful as to raise you from the dead and present you one day glorious in splendor in His sight. That's what our hope is. I have many, many, many friends who are missionaries and they're in Muslim countries right now or go to Muslim cu- countries regularly. I have a friend who's getting ready to go to a very, very dangerous part of the world. He tells me, don't text me about it. Don't tell anybody about it. Don't talk about it. But he goes to some of the most dangerous places on earth. And I don't know how he makes it out of there every time. But I know one thing. He set his hope on God who is able to raise the dead. If his hope is just keep me alive... There's no way he can go where he's going because there's a very good chance he may not keep you alive. Will you still go? If you have resurrection hope, you will. That's what it's all about. Jesus knows the agony of our weakness, the depth of our dependence, and last of all, he knows the extent of our suffering. When we see the depth of Jesus' reliance on God in the context of his grief, his tears, his sorrow, his cross we can quickly begin to realize that Jesus knows the extent of the things that we suffer. And far worse, he suffered more than any man. Jesus suffered and learned obedience, it says. Look at verse 8 with me, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. As the Son of God, we are already told in the book of Hebrews over and over that he is worthy of worship, for example. And here I'm thinking, for example, of verse 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels a winds and a minister a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 6, when he, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So up to this point, Discussion about the Son has primarily focused on His exaltation, that He deserves to be exalted. Nobody questions that. Jesus, the Son of God, He deserves to be on the throne. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves the honor that He gets. But He is also called to suffer. And this is what the the pastor of Hebrews wants his church to get, to understand That yes, this is the path that was chosen for him. It has to do with the fact that he was to be a priest. Remember, let me show you what the priests were. Remember the priests, they were sympathetic. Remember the priests, they were weak themselves. Remember the priests, they were pointing away from themselves ultimately to Jesus. And this is the way that it works out in the life of Jesus. Now turn to chapter 2 again with me. Hebrews chapter 2 beginning in verse 9. 
Because he has talked about his exaltation, but he's also referred to his suffering already, you remember? And this is the path chosen for him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, Hebrews 2.9. Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Oh, and so now we see the purpose of the suffering, at least in part, that his suffering was redemptive. It was so that he would taste death as a representative, as our representative, that he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, it was fitting. What a remarkable concept. It was fitting. It was right. In the economy of God, it was wise for God to do this. For whom are all things, through whom are all things, to bring many sons to glory. That's you and I, if we're in Christ, to be brought to glory. How? To perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings. That's how. Jesus was brought, he was brought to his perfect session in the universe, in heaven, through suffering. It means that through suffering, Jesus was exalted. He had to go all the way down to go all the way up. And in that sense, we can identify with that. Right now, we feel, don't you feel it? I do. I feel it as things as simple as waking up, having a sore neck, waking up, things on my body are crackling and snapping and making all these noises. And I'm thinking, boy, the outer man is perishing. We are on a road of suffering for sure because those Aches and pains are just going to grow into, you know, uh, uh, whatever. I don't want to curse myself, but <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to get worse. I don't, I don't believe it. I'm not superstitious, right? We're not superstitious. It's not word of faith. I'm not going to speak it into existence. <laughs> but you know what I mean. Our bodies are breaking down. Everything around us testifies to our weakness. And yet, how arrogant is man still? You would think, just take a look. Just turn on the television. Look at the news. You would think in a moment you should be in tune with how weak you are, how dependent you are, how finite you are, how limited, how fragile, and how brief your little life is. Brief. Just as a vapor. Boom. It's gone. It's just maddening when you're talking to a college student that just he thinks that he's the, the master of his own universe. Now, I remember. I'll never forget it, guys. And for those of you that have heard me preach now for any time, you've heard me tell this story several times, but it haunts me. I'm talking to a young man at Southlake, and I'm trying to press him with the gospel and his need to get right with God. He says, I go to church. I go, yeah, 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 but you know, you got to get saved, you know. It's not just about going to church. He's like, yeah, he's like, you know, I go to church because of that right there. Nice, shiny, beautiful truck. I said, what do you mean? Well, if I go to church, my parents let me drive that. The next Monday, front page of the Star Telegram, that young man crashed that truck into a ditch and died. His name was BJ. And the next week, we were out there doing evangelism again, and his friends came up to us, and they were weeping and crying and wondering and asking us questions about God, and we're just like, we hate to say, it's like the ultimate, I told you so, but it's like, I told you so! BJ, for all of his 
pomp and all of his pride and all his fashion and all of his stuff, all of his vanity is nothing. He is a breath and he played with God. And God had his soul in his hand, his life in his hand. And BJ heard, the, if you would, the words of the Lord that say, you fool, today your soul is required of you. Then who's that shiny truck going to belong to? Who cares? Eternity is at hand. And so you too, you and me, both of us, all of us, we're all in this place this brief little existence where we are called temporarily to suffer, to be in a state of weakness. And if we hold fast, if we follow in the, in the footsteps of Jesus, Peter says, Jesus left you an example that you would follow in the steps by suffering and showing you this is how you suffer when you get the call. This is how you suffer when you can't take care of yourself anymore. This is how you suffer, whether you're called to suffer long or whether you're called like my good friend, uh, my my, my my really good friend Kevin Bundy, who in four months was gone. 27 years old, there we are on the basketball court having a great time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into him and I'm teasing him and blah, blah, blah. Four months later, leukemia takes him. He's gone. And therefore, what... Paul says is so true. Momentary, light affliction is working in us an exceeding weight of glory. But if you have no weight in eternal things, this will mean nothing to you. If your eyes are not open to an eternal perspective, well, then you will only translate your trials as frustrating and sin-inducing, and you will, you will have the same logic as Job's wife. Curse God and die for these trials. But it's only when you see things from a biblical perspective, a Christological perspective, from an eternal perspective, from a gospel perspective, that you will come to the realization, no, my trials are working in me an exceeding weight of glory that does not appear at the time. I can't see it, but my hope is there. When your hope is there, your hope is not in a doctor. When your hope is there, Your hope is not in medicine. They have their limitations. God does not. Did you guys see the picture this week of the doctor? He's an ER doctor who lost a 19-year-old patient who he was trying to save in the ER, and he had a moment that doctors are not supposed to have. He ran outside, and somebody took a snapshot of him out in the parking lot. He was leaning up against a brick wall, holding up his hand with his head hung as low as you can hang it. And he was devastated that he lost that young man. The doctors have their limits, but God does not. God doesn't lose people in the ER. God uses the ER to take his people home. <laughs> it is, the ER is a portal to paradise. And that's how Christians die with a big fat smile on their face. Say, don't worry about me. What about you? you get one of these? Don't worry about me. I'm fine. Where are you going? That's what I'm concerned about, right? I've gone too long. Let's pray. Father, I know that you will keep us. Your word says so. We are being kept 
by the power of God for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are being protected. And we are, we are citizens of a kingdom that will have no end. Our hope, as Peter says in his book, our hope is ultimately that we have our salvation reserved, ready for us, in heaven. An inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that will never fade away. And so, God, I pray... Above everything, make us strong. Let the roots of our endurance go deep into the soil of your word and give us hope so that we can flourish for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.